from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, clean tax cuts and the global free market for plastic solutions, the growing movement for clean energy equity, turning clean economy jobs into clean economy careers, and it's World Water Week and we're going to talk about Mars, the food company that is. It's a high watermark this week on 350. It's August 31st, 2018, the cusp of September. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me this week here in Green Biz Studio in Oakland is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. Hola. So good to have you here on the, the left coast. Um, uh, maybe tell people why you came out. Well, I needed to be educated, and that's why I was here. But uh, seriously, we had a great presentation on power markets, and that was my main focus, since that is one of my main focuses, if foci, if you will, uh, in coverage. Um, so, and then I also just was missing you, Joel. So I had to come see you. <laughs> well, I love that, even though I know you're just being being kind here. But yeah, we had a visitor from the east besides you, Heather. And that's Peter Kelly Detweiler, who is the managing partner of uh, Northbridge Energy, one of the veterans of 30 years of energy consulting for utilities, for power markets, for companies. And um, for the last few years at our Verge conferences, uh, Peter has done a four-hour tutorial called Power Markets and Innovation 101, how they work and what's next. And it covers how power markets work and what's going, what's been taking place over the past decade and the revolutionary changes that are soon to occur or occurring now. And, and, and when he did this in Hawaii at, at our Verge conference, I said, dude, I want to, I miss hearing this. Everyone raves about it. I've never heard you do this. And so the guy flew out from Boston to do this for the Green Biz team, 20-some of us. And wow, my head's still kind of spinning. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was particularly relevant because, of course, I cover many of these issues. And I, I don't struggle for what to cover. I actually, the, the challenge I have is which particular issue because there's, all, there's so many different things going on and they're all interconnected, no pun intended. Um, but this really helped me figure out where to focus. Um, so grateful, very grateful that he came in and did that. So a little more Peter Kelly Detweiler, PKD, as mm -hmm. he calls himself and as we love to call him uh, later on in this program. Um, and what else is going on in here? We t you talked to uh, Paul Karp and Elaine Shea. Uh, what, what's coming up there? Mm -hmm. Well, it's about seven weeks out now until uh, the Verge 18 conference. So I was getting caught up with uh, who the speakers are and, and many of the different issues that we should be covering. So as, as editorial director directors, one of the things I do is figure out our sort of meta event coverage. So spending time on that. But I did specifically get to talk to Paul about some of the things that are happening in workforce development and specifically how you turn a a job, a clean uh, energy or clean economy job into a career, and what are the, the workforce development mechanisms around that. And Paul Karp is our energy, right. senior energy analyst and director of research mm -hmm. here at Green mm -hmm. Biz. And then who else? 
and Elaine Shea, our program director. So she's programming all the main stage stuff and many, many, many fun speakers. Um, and, and the thing for me I've always appreciated about Virgie, even before I became full-time member of the GreenBiz team, was the, the focus on solutions and interconnections. So the themes at Verge are energy, transportation, and circular economy, but they're not in their little silo. I mean, certainly there are sessions focused on those silos, but the value of that event is the is the way to net is the ability to network and socialize and and hear different perspectives about the same topic, um, and it just sort of jars your thinking and challenges you to think differently, but also to see solutions where you might not have seen them before, and I love that so. I chatted with her about what's going on there. One more of that to come up soon. Well, damn it, let's get to it. It's time for the Week in Review. Well, let's begin with a company that's been in the news uh, for lots of reasons, but one of them, it, reasons that Facebook has been in the news is about its 100% renewables target, and you covered that. Heather, tell us about it. So the, let's just be clear. The, this target has been in place for seven years, actually. Um, and uh, they were one of the first technology companies to, I, I won't say cave, but to respond to the Greenpeace cert, uh, criticism about you know the source of power behind the data centers. Very much in the past, it has been all about coal, right? Lots of... Um, Data centers were cited in regions where coal was by far the majority of the power being generated. What Facebook did this week was actually set a deadline. Um, They hadn't done that before. They kind of said, at some point, Um, but they've been accelerating their purchases so much in the past couple of years. They jumped from 25% to 51% in about two years. Um, Renewable energy use. Exactly. Yeah, 100% renewables. Like We want 100% of our load at data centers and at the headquarters sites to be renewable. And um, they've been accelerating their, their purchases so quickly, they decided, what the heck, we're going to go, we're going to go for it. And um, they set a 20, by 2020, they will be all in. So a little more than a year from now, they're going to power no, power all of their facilities with zero coal? That is the theory. And what for me is particularly interesting about what Facebook is doing is it's is focus on local purchasing. So it is being incredibly active at helping places that you might not think of, New Mexico, Utah, develop clean power sources, renewable energy sources. And it goes into the utilities. It does a lot of work with the local communities to figure out how is it going to get this, the power there? What investment does it need to make? What shape will that contract take? Will it, be, will it be a power purchase agreement through a developer? Will it be a green tariff through the utility? Um, and and that, that, frankly, makes it a little bit different, um, what Facebook's doing from the other players. I mean, there's a lot of action going on in the technology industry, as we've well covered. Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, really all active. But in this way, Facebook is, is pretty darn unique, and they're, they're really out there advocating to add in places that haven't necessarily had access before. And that, that I think, is really notable. So they're making sure that they, when they cite plants that uh, don't have renewables or that they either make sure those renewables come in or they're saying we're not, we're not going to cite our plant there. Is that the case? They actually do that. Um, they, they come in and say, you know what, you know, and if you're not interested, then we're going to move to a different place. 
they'll, they, they'll, they'll go to a different state, they'll go to a, a different county <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and they, they, they've done this in Oregon too. Um, they're even in, behind some solar projects there, which is um, quite unique. And, um, but it just, it's just, as I said, and this is not, we're not talking about like small amounts of energy. We're talking about um, close to three gigawatts, right? They're, they're, I think, second only to Google as far as how much they procure. And uh, so this is, this is a big, big goal. Um, my guess is they probably have a bunch of um, uh, agreements in the works that we don't know about yet because these things take months, if not years, to pull off. But um, absolutely, they're they're putting the, the, the stake out there and, and really saying we're going for it. All right. Well, go Facebook. Let's all do a thumbs up there. And let's move over to another topic on clean tax cuts. We had a piece by uh, Doug Woodring, who is the founding founder and managing director of the Ocean Recovery Alliance and runs the Plasticity Forum. Uh, Rod Richardson, who's the president of, of uh, Grace Richardson Fund, and Scott Castle, who is the uh, CEO of the Product Stewardship Institute. And they're looking at, at sort of this connection between between plastic and, and funding the, this transition and how to do that and some funding mechanisms that are known as clean tax cuts. Uh, I heard first heard about this about a year ago um, and uh, been fascinated with, with, with tracking it and I'm so glad that they did this piece because it's a good primer on this emerging world of, of clean tax cuts and all the different mechanisms that are coming out of that. They have clean asset bonds and, and loans and uh, a number of other of, of other things that are, you know, really help to address the problem of how do we find the capital for the transitions that we're, we're needing here. And, and they're doing, they're looking in this particular article at at the plastic waste stream and the circular economy, but it certainly applies to renewable energy and, and, and so many other things. Yeah, I think the other, th I mean, to me, this is just a, a, a really relevant financing mechanism. We talk about tax cuts and credits and so forth, and we do know that incentives of this nature help get the market started. They're, they're, they're not a long-term solution. They're not a permanent solution. But unless someone invests in these things and invests in the changes to a a MRF, you know, unless they change the the recycling infrastructure to handle a circular economy, there's you're not going to get there. And and these investments take time. They also and this actually also helps with the financing of it, right? At the corporate level, it's it they're mechanisms that the finance team understands and they can figure out as as far as accounting laws go. And um, so these are some interesting solutions that have been proposed. I don't I'm not aware. Maybe you are of any that are actually in place. I think most of these uh, are still conceptual, but there I think that we're we're getting closer to that point where we will start to see mm -hmm. some of these in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So clean tax cuts, clean product tax cuts, clean energy bonds, and uh, clean asset bonds. Uh, read all about it. It's a really interesting piece. And so while we're on the topic of sort of leading edge concepts, let's move over. This was uh, August 26th to 31st. It was World Water Week. I'm sorry, Heather, I didn't get you anything. <laughs> but um, we have this really interesting piece uh, that I think uh, is, is worthy of, of calling out by Ian Knight, who's the Global Site Sustainability Manager at uh, Mars Global, the, the big food company, which has not just candy bars, but uh, Purina and I think and uh, animal uh, pet food, big pet food and rice, Uncle Ben's rice and a yeah. number of other things. Um, and they're talking about something called context-based 
water targets. Mm -hmm. Now we've talked about science-based targets and, and this is that's usually for greenhouse gas emissions. This is context-based water targets, which really have to do with how do you make sure that the targets your company is setting align with meaningful outcomes, align mm -hmm. with the stress that's being put on the specific water systems that, that you're using. And so context-based water targets are a water measure that are being used to track progress on a company's efforts relative to the, th the thresholds of a particular water base. And so, so Ian writes about uh, how Mars is deploying and implementing these uh, context-based water targets, CBWTs, terrible, <laughs> terrible acronym, um, to uh, in their in their different supply chains. So, for example, using it in uh, water stressed areas like India, Pakistan, and Spain, which is where they rep they source rice for Uncle Ben's rice. Uh, rice represents over half of the water use in their value chain. And they regard that as being unsustainable. So they describe how they're dealing with it. Yeah, context has always been super important for water goals. I mean, clearly, because where you grow things and, and the stress that it puts on the entire system hasn't been, um, it's been hinted at and people have talked about really addressing it um, for a long time. But this is the first sort of wave of specific scientific. I mean, they're, 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 it's, they're using the word context, but it, they're definitely science behind this, and they're, and they're putting a lot of focus on how they can address things at the watershed level and um, what changes they can make to be able to, you know, maybe it's changing locations, maybe it's a, a way of um, doing different irrigation systems and so forth, um, growing things in a totally different way. And this important this is important thinking for, for changing the water stewardship equation um, at corporate food companies. Yeah, and water is different from energy in the sense that it's also time-based uh, in that it depends on, on the local uh, conditions and the rainfall and, and the, the, any drought conditions, and uh, every watershed is a little bit different. So you can't just, you know, it's not gallon for gallon, where with carbon it is, kind of is. It's a ton of carbon is going to be the same regardless of the source or where you emit it. Um, and so water is hyperlocal and, and sort of setting these, that's the context in some, some ways that we're talking about here to make sure that not only are you using or replenishing the amount of water that you're using, but that you're doing it in the specific places that you're taking it. And, and we're going to be seeing more and more food companies starting down this path. Right. Um, aside from Mars, um, he mentions Nestle, Danone, and Coca-Cola, and they're all working on uh, what what we're calling the water benefits accounting methodology projects. Now, uh, again, uh, uh, that's a specific project, but the point is that there's no standard way of of measuring the benefits of of acting in this in this way, um, and that's something that needs to change. And so these companies are are getting their act together. So you're going to see a lot more collaboration on on setting sort of uh, industry understandable goals um, around how, how to talk about these things. So stay tuned. I am joined by Peter Kelly Detweiler. He is the founder, co-founder of Northbridge Energy Partners. And Peter was kind enough to give the entire GreenBiz team a lovely four-hour-long uh, presentation on power markets, which actually was just a fascinating um, discussion of 
the dynamics of the U.S. market in particular, um, the technologies that are coming into play. And uh, I'm sorry you couldn't be there for four hours, but we're going to try to synthesize some of the highlights, for me at least. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here um, in, in Oakland this week, but also uh, on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to start with a question um, that, that fascinated me, intrigued me, and I, I guess I understand it. Living in New Jersey, where natural gas is predominant and abundant and, and very much part of the mix. But um, I never really thought about the fact that electricity markets in the United States are very much pegged now to natural gas prices, or at least being very influenced. There's a very big link between the two. Can you dis- describe that a little bit more? And why should buyers, um, corporate energy buyers, be really following that? Yeah, that's because, in, you know, in the old days, um, coal was more predominant in the mix. But now that we have hydrofracking or fracking, uh, natural gas plants are all the way through the middle of the generation stack. And by that, I mean uh, the renewables get called upon first because they don't cost anything to run. So they always get dispatched. And then after that, a lot of the generation that would be on the supply side that matches up when supply crosses demand happens to be in the natural gas part of the generation stack so that the marginal spot price that's set is often driven by the underlying fundamental cost of natural gas. So tracking that and understanding those volatilities and you know, what gas prices are doing is really important for people who are looking at electricity prices. Many of the questions that I get about um, coverage that we, we do of renewables and integrating renewables has to do with the, the ISO, the, the, the regional markets of the United States. And some are wholesale, some are retail and wholesale, some are organizing. There's lots of different ways of organizing, and I'm not even going to pretend to understand them all. Although with your 30 years of experience, I think you have a lot better handle on it than I do. Um, but the question for, for the corporate buyers in the audience um, that are listening to the podcast you know, what should they know about the risks of get, getting involved in a wholesale market? Like, how can they, you know, before they get involved in that kind of um, dynamic, what should they know about how to protect themselves? So first of all, most people, I wouldn't, most corporate buyers, I would not recommend that they uh, transact directly in wholesale markets unless they're buying long-term contracts and actually locking in um, and mitigating the risk. There could be a tendency right now, and we see it, where because spot market prices have been so low, the clearing prices in the moment, that you can be lulled into thinking, well, I'll just stay on spot market price and I won't hedge my position um, and pay more for a retail product. And uh, that can be a problem. You take a place like Texas where average spot market prices around the clock for the last few years have been $30 a megawatt hour, so $0.03 a kilowatt hour. Prices in Texas this year went up to $2 a kilowatt hour in the summer for a brief period of time. They can go as high as $9 a kilowatt hour, which is 300 times your average price. That risk is less severe in other markets, but electricity is the most volatile commodity on the planet, bar none. So um, if you are unhedged, you are playing a game of weather derivatives and you don't even know it necessarily. So my advice is lock in at least some of your position with a reputable retail supplier and be careful about how much you can avoid risk to something that could be existential to your company. Now, obviously, one of the positions you held in the past, Senior Vice President of Energy Technology. Ooh, so smart meters and energy. St- I mean, you've got a lot of a background in, in technologies that are driving many of the changes we're seeing in the markets. Energy storage, a big topic among many states right now. I see people um, setting mandates or of having so much storage on the grid or behind the meter. 
um, by certain times. But can you give us a sense of um, where energy storage is headed, some of the things that you're watching, as well as, you know, from a, both a policy and a technology level? Sure. I think the, the principal thing to understand here is that the cost of energy storage is typically lithium ion, what everyone's looking at. Lithium ion is being driven by the electric vehicle market that, you know, we sold globally a million last year, and it'll be two million within the next year and a half or two years. So essentially, uh, electricity supply is the tick that sits on the dog. The dog being EV and stationary electric storage goes along for that ride. And costs are coming down. The experience curve suggests every time you double your manufacturing volume, costs fall by 20% or better. We're seeing now gigafactories being built on the scale of you know 20,000 uh, megs in megawatts in Europe, you know another 50,000 megawatt factory here in China, another one over there. Uh, we're going to see say five times the size of the Tesla gigafactory built out in China within the next few years. Costs fall across the curve. So now storage becomes a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Look at Germany right now. They have 100,000 batteries behind the meter on customers' premises tied to solar. And every second solar installation now in Germany is tied with batteries. That wave is coming to the United States very shortly, both for, for the commercial and residential sectors. And finally, what should our audience know about the pace of change in energy today? So it's pretty easy to forget where we are and contextualize things. But if you think about it, 10 years ago, we did not have a solar industry. There, I mean, almost nobody that you know of had solar on a rooftop. And the battery industry didn't exist to all intents and purposes or the electric vehicle industry five years ago. Uh, wind, same thing. It's a 10-year industry. So when someone says, oh, we're going to set a goal of X by 2045, like uh, mayors, 35 mayors in California announced, oh, 100% electric buses by the year 2040. To me, that's 22 years away. That's a century's worth of progress if we look back versus where we're going to go in the next 22 years. We're going to make at least a century's worth of progress. To me, that's a slam dunk goal, right? The pace of change is such that you know, a lot of people still think we're living in a snapshot world, but we actually inhabit a motion picture whose frames are accelerating, and we need to plan accordingly and understand that we have to integrate change and the pace of innovation into our models and into our spreadsheets as we move forward. So you can't really have a discussion about the clean energy economy without talking about the jobs behind it. Here to talk with us about workforce development is Paul Karp, the Director of Research for GreenBiz. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Well, so one of the things that we've been just chatting about is how do you turn jobs into careers in the clean economy, in the clean energy economy? So why is workforce development such an important part of the equation? Well, Heather, you've covered this a ton in your writing, and you know we talk about this a lot at GreenBiz, but you know the two fastest growing jobs right now in America are wind turbine technicians and solar PV installers. And so this is part of the whole movement, you know corporate purchasing movement. This is part of this this clean economy push. But um, you know there was a report earlier published earlier this year by the National Association of State Energy Officials. This is the group that represents the fifty governors across the country and the Energy Futures Initiative. So that's uh, former DOE Secretary Ernie Moniz's new organization. 
And, you know, they, they said that there are 3.2 million Americans out there working in wind, solar, and energy efficiency, which is three times the number of people working in the fossil fuel industry. And so, you know, the jobs are out there. I'm going to ask you a question because I think this is very relevant. And where are those jobs? Well, I, I was just going to say the interesting thing about that is that, you know, you can sort of imagine where some of the jobs would be, but it, it cited the top states for clean, clean energy jobs. And California was number one. And beyond that, it's Texas, Florida, New York, Michigan, and Illinois. So these jobs, you know, just by geography and just by the market and by the appetite for clean energy really transcends, you know, red state, blue state, it transcends urban and rural. And, you know, the people that are represented, I think are, you know, is really interesting as well. So veterans, the report cited, uh, you know, Hispanic and Latino workers make up a greater share of solar and wind jobs than, than the national average. Um, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. So African-American and women employees are still lower than the national average. So you mentioned um, before the, the corporate power purchase agreement movement, right? That That's helping drive a lot of this activity, the big deals that we see happening in in deregulated markets primarily, but also now in regulated markets. So when you look at that, what role should the, the private sector, the, these corporations, what role should they be playing in this in this development? How should they get involved? Yeah, I mean, I think you and we've covered this, but you know, you see companies like Facebook and, and Microsoft going into, you know, rural communities in Nebraska, in South Dakota, and essentially making a case around there's a clean energy and an environmental case to it, but it's an economic case. It's around jobs, it's around workforce development, it's around, you know, fueling, you know, all the all the people needed to, you know, clean the solar panels, you know, service the 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 wind turbines there's an entire army of people needed to to maintain these systems and these are relatively you know high paying jobs these are not low you know low wage you know installers minimum wage type jobs they're they're somewhat technical they're jobs that require training and um you know and they're only going to get more and more complicated as you bring in new technologies where is this training coming from yeah, so one of the interesting things, um, you know, I'm on the board of a, of a nonprofit, it's called Rising Sun Energy Center, and they uh, are just one example of organizations out there that um, offer these pre-apprenticeship programs. So there's this gap between, you know, folks that are ready to go out and, and start, you know, working in, you know, servicing wind, you know, wind turbines or servicing microgrids. Um, and there are these programs out there, some of them align with uh, labor organizations, they align with, you know, the, the private sector to train people to make sure that they're ready to get out into the workforce. But, um, you know, they're complicated, they're expensive. Um, at times, it, it requires a lot of coordination with local government, with utilities, with a lot of different stakeholders. So there are examples out there, but it is, um, you know, I think we need a lot more programs out there like that to, to promote this kind of work. So where, where can we um, have more conversations about this? I know that you're preparing some sessions and panels and education at Verge, but also some other conferences coming up in the near future. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one big initiative is, is Governor Jerry Brown has the Global Climate Action Summit coming up in a couple of weeks in, in California. Um, and as a part of that, uh, I will be moderating a panel. There's there are a series of these affiliate events, you know, on all different topics. And I'll be moderating a panel on, really as a part of a climate action career fair to help 
you know, young people get involved in energy, climate change, sustainability programs. So the panel will have four young women who have have, you know, made progress in this area, focusing on sustainability, installing solar programs, uh, you know, getting involved in green business programs. So there are a ton of opportunities to talk about this, but I think it's giving people exposure to the idea that these programs exist. Um, and then at Verge, which is you know our, our October event, we uh, will have a clean energy equity showcase. And this is really focused on, on California specifically, and this will bring together regulators, policymakers, corporates, nonprofits, really talking about how to get to address this, this gap and, and really to, to bring people together on this topic of workforce development. And then finally, we will have a session at Verge called Moving from Green Jobs to Clean Energy Careers. And I think you opened the, the you know the discussion here well. I think it's it's moving from you know the sort of low-paying minimum wage type jobs to really you know how do we get people to have a career in clean energy and you know that that pays well that can encourage someone to to really uh, move further in this in this space. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Heather. The nonprofit group Vote Solar recently published a roadmap for addressing financial barriers to solar that are currently faced by up to 78 million low-income or low-credit score American households. It's part of a larger discussion taking place about clean energy equity, how to ensure that the benefits of the clean economy inure to those at all income levels. Here to talk about the report and the roadmap is Melanie Santiago Mosier, Program Director of Access and Equity at Vote Solar. Thanks for joining us, Melanie. Thanks, Joel, for having me. So it's clear that the more households with solar energy, the better it is for climate, air quality, energy security, and, and all the rest. But what do we know about the demand for solar within the low-income communities and community-based organizations that you talk about in the report? There is a really high level of interest and a growing level of demand for solar and other clean energy products among underserved communities and community-based organizations. So these are groups that have been really left behind in the evolution of our energy system for the past hundred years or so. This is an energy system that has largely been extractive for low-income communities, communities of color, and other underserved communities. So while these communities have paid a lot into this energy system, what they've gotten in return hasn't always been great. So there have been environmental injustices, adverse health impacts, adverse uh, economic impacts, and residents of these communities largely have not participated in the jobs offered by the you know, traditional energy economy to date. So as these groups see the transition to a clean energy economy, um, they're very, very excited about the new opportunities. So what's keeping this from happening? What are the barriers? There are a number of barriers. So, you know, when I think about barriers to entry for underserved populations, I think about barriers in terms of a few different categories. So first of all, there are physical barriers and barriers that relate to home ownership status. So low-income families are much more likely to rent their homes than their wealthier counterparts. Across the country, about 65% of low-income families actually rent. So the lack of home ownership really curtails households' options when it comes to going solar or, you know, participating in other clean energy options as well. Housing conditions also are a factor. 
So for families who don't own their homes, the history of suburbanization and redlining and discriminatory housing policies means that people of color and families in low-income communities are more likely to live in older homes, so they'll need repairs and more upgrades. And in some areas of the country, lower-income families are more likely to live in manufactured housing, and that's going to be very efficient and probably not structurally able to accommodate solar. So when we think about housing and physical barriers, there, there are quite a few things to think about. Another kind of barrier that's top of mind for me and that I've heard about from a lot of solar providers is that there's an education and outreach barrier. So low-income communities have typically been the targets of scams. And so when they're approached by solar providers, there's an immediate level of distrust that needs to be overcome. Additionally, traditional solar sales teams may not be prepared to talk about solar energy with multilingual or multicultural households. And, you know, solar is a little bit complicated. So there's been a real need to talk about solar in very simple ways. So all those things you mentioned are on the consumer side of, of solar. What about on the job opportunity side? There's really a desire among lower income communities to have their local communities participate in this job market. And so from a policymaking point of view, I think it's incumbent on us to think about how to incentivize solar providers to create job opportunities at the local level. The final barrier that I think about with regard to accessing solar and participating in the solar economy really goes to cost sensitivity and access to financing products. And that's really where we get to the inclusive solar finance framework. So an average four kilowatt or so solar system for a home costs upward of, call it $16,000. And that's not an insignificant amount of money for any family. But when we think about lower income families and families in underserved communities, that amount of money is definitely uh, quite a barrier. In regards to middle American families all across the country, over the last decade, we've seen interesting financing mechanisms become available like power purchase agreements or increasing leases or, you know, in the last couple of years, increasing positive loan terms that have allowed lots of families to go solar. But those different financing arrangements and third-party ownership arrangements really are limited to families with, you know, a debt-to-income ratio that, you know, that is healthy or a credit score that is healthy that the finance community will look at and be comfortable with. So with regard to low-income families looking to purchase solar, you know, take advantage of solar finance products, there's automatically a barrier when, you know, when we're talking about a low-income family or a, a family who doesn't have a great credit score or a great credit history. So a lot of these things are, as you said, at the hyper-local level, the city, community, neighborhood even. Uh, whose responsibility is this to sort of look at the policy and business model and framework and remove some of these barriers? Is it city governments? Is it happened at the state level? Is it happened at some, I, I can't imagine at the national level at this point. What are you, what are you looking at? What do you recommend? Well, Vote Solar focuses us on state-level policymaking. So we find that really the state level is where you really need to take a, a, a good look at energy policies and energy incentives. And from there, we've seen market development really take off. So, you know, when we think about making jobs available and making incentives available to deploy solar for lower-income families, 
we tend to start at the state level and thinking through state level legislation that may need be needed to enable programs or enable incentives. And then from there, there may need to be some local level work done as well. What we always try to do is build partnerships with the, the groups who are most interested in seeing this happen. So we're very interested in building partnerships with environmental justice communities, housing uh, advocate communities, and other communities who can really help us work at the state and, you know, as needed at the local level. What are the two or three main recommendations that you'd like to see implemented at at, a state level? So our inclusive finance framework, you know, really seeks to to give a, a roadmap and policy tools for policymakers that they can use to kind of break down some of those financial barriers. So we have key, five key categories of financial interventions that we think can overcome the barriers. So these include making tax credits refundable, reprogramming existing energy funds, establishing credit enhancement or other financing assistance tools, alternative credit scoring, and finally, community solar, which is a very popular option among folks that were interviewed. You know, we make clear in our inclusive solar finance framework report that the solutions have to be structured to meet the unique needs of each customer and community. And so we need processes and outcomes that prioritize collaboration, transparency, and consumer protection and education. Well, we'll provide a link to the report from the webpage for this podcast. Melanie Santiago Mosier is Program Director of Access and Equity at the nonprofit group Vote Solar. Thanks so much, Melanie. Thanks for having me, Joel. Well, there are about seven weeks to go before the Verge 18 conference. We are busy planning the wonderful sessions that are happening in energy, transportation, and circular economy during the event, as well as the meta themes that we always cross, you know, that always cross over, such as resilience and, and equity and so forth. And here to talk to me about what really makes Verge unique is Elaine Shea, the program director. Hello, Elaine. Hi, Heather. Great to be here. Sorry to steal you away from your busy uh, uh, planning, but one of the things that, that we're doing um, that's a little bit more unique with the conference this year is, is having three different tracks. However, uh, you are planning the, the Uber meta sessions on the main stage, and what I've always appreciated about them is the the sort of um, different sorts of views you bring to to issues, you know. So we talk about energy issues, but you bring in these kind of unexpected uh, voices and opinions and perspectives. So what makes Verge really unique? I mean, there's a lot of events coming up. What makes what you're doing and what we're doing with Verge unique? Yeah, since our inception, we've been about um, what happens when you bring together people from many different industries with a lot of different technologies and a lot of different kinds of models and approaches. And um, I mean, how do you actually make that a cohesive event? (laughs) Why would you even want to do that? What would compel you to come to an event where you're socializing with people who don't even necessarily work in your industry? Um, And the way that we um, address this at Verge is, and what I think really makes us special is the fact that we are talking about the things that are systemic in nature. So we're addressing challenges that independent of sector or industry, you are trying to address, you're trying to solve for or accelerate the market to be more resilient, more equitable, more sustainable, more affordable, reliable, 
you know, mitigating risks, just more economically advantageous for more people. And so in order to really address kind of the larger issues across your either entrenched space or you're trying to disrupt something and you're trying to innovate um, in a way that can scale um, to accelerate the market in some way, um, you have to look at a lot of different kinds of pieces of how that ecosystem functions, right? So you're looking at policy, you're looking at technology, you're looking at social issues, you're looking at environmental issues. There's a lot of cultural, um, and there's so many different people and technologies and different kinds of processes that you have to engage with that um, that's sort of what binds it all together. Like this is how you make it cohesive. A lot of people who are very well known in the energy industry or infrastructure or buildings or transportation or supply chains or whatever um, come to Verge, but they are preaching to an acquirer and they're engaging with people who are opening their eyes and helping them make connections where they hadn't before because they were working with the same people. And that's kind of the thing that ke- keeps people coming back. Yeah, and you you used a verb a moment ago, solve, right? And one of the things as a journalist that I've always appreciated about this particular event is there's solutions being discussed. It's not, we know there are problems. We know know there are challenges. Um, But these people are solving, and they're solving in unique and innovative ways. Um, And I want to take one of the themes that we were were discussing earlier this week, um, resilience. So let's put the verge lens on that. You know, how would be discussed, you know, resilience in a, in a different way than than other conferences you know it's a much think people t- tend to think of grid resilience mm-hmm. um why is it more than that i think it's interesting because resilience is really defined very differently by different people you look at rockefeller foundation seating all these chief resilience officers in cities and every one of those cro's is needing to work within those communities to help them define locally what resilience means. Because some people think like it's digitizing stuff or it's hardening the infrastructure or it's all that. Um, There's this community aspect to it. There's a um, cultural aspect to it. And then there's an extension of that. And what are the second and third order and fourth order impacts that are created that you also have to address as a consequence of those actions that you're initially taking. So it's extremely strategic in terms of Um, trying to understand how to address resilience holistically so that more people or the entire ecosystem can sort of benefit. Example, we have a keynote. um, We have actually many discussions about resilience at Verge this year, but one of them is a keynote called Global Resilience Strategies um, in a Climate-Constrained World. That's a tentative description, uh, uh, title right now, but it's basically with, you know, the players you would expect. We have the second-in-command at the Department of Homeland Security. He's going to be talking about infrastructure and cybersecurity and physical and um, security and a number of other things that have to do with um, hardening our grid system as well as our transportation infrastructure and a number of other sources to make us more energy independent and secure. And then you also have Dennis McGinn, who is a former uh, vice admiral of the U.S. Navy. He's coming at it from a, you know, how do you, how is sustainability actually um, making us globally more climate resilient. And then we are bringing in another person who um, you wouldn't necessarily expect. His name is Maddie Stanislaus. He is a circular economy fellow at the World Resources Institute. Now, you know, for those of you who know what circular economy is, um, you wonder, well, that's interesting that you're talking about it in the context of global resilience with these military guys. 
Well, the reason why we're bringing him in is because Maddie is a deep expertise into how companies, governments, and consumers need to work together to build circular economy systems. And he used to be the senior political official for the Obama administration in the EPA. Um, he was in charge of the Office of Land and Emergency Management, which is a Senate-confirmed position. So he has this global perspective of how governments function and how things are interconnected from that standpoint. When he works in supply chains and a number of other circular economy systems, He's worked with the G7 Alliance for Resources Efficiency. They identified that the key driver for climate resilience is actually supply chains. So you talk about cobalt shortages in the DRC, talk about supply chain resource issues um, in Africa. There are a lot of places where climate change is not only impacting resources, but also impacting uh, whether or not people can stay where they are. So there's mass migrations being caused by climate change, and there's a direct direct impact in terms of our resilience as a country or as a world, um, our ability to actually thrive as a society within communities, the level of education that's there, the amount of economic opportunities, it's all interconnected. And so the key for us is whenever we're looking at any topic, whether it be resilience or anything else, renewables, et cetera, how do you look at it in a really multifaceted way? How do you um, extend it to not just talking about life cycle impact, but rather ecosystem impact? We know that policy is, is a big part of many of these conversations. Um, politics also can be a big part of the conversation, and we know that the current climate is very polarized. Um, however, many of the solutions I've seen show up at Verge are from places you would never think of. So what's the lens on, on how to make sure that there's more of a um, bipartisan perspective on, on what's going on? Not necessarily you know having political discussions, but making sure that that we, we don't um, limit this in, in some way to, to regions you might think of first. Um, how do you get those different parts of the world into the conversation and showcase their solutions? That's a good question. Um, generally, we like to elevate ourselves above any kind of partisan discussions, but it's a reality that we're living in right now. So I think the key for us is to be very solutions oriented and really you know, frame the challenge, but be focused on what is replicable and scalable for the industry to get us to a more positive end faster. And so one of the examples that I can hold up, I guess, along these lines is that we have a Verge talk, which is kind of like a TED talk, um, by the chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission, this young Indian American man who's very dynamic named Asim Hawk. And he is doing a talk that is called Progress Despite Politics, Lessons from a red state utility commissioner. Um, it's a red state, as you know, Ohio. Um, he is a commissioner of the, I mean, he's the chair of the P Public Utilities Commission, and he has to deal with politics all the time, given what he's trying to accomplish. At the same time, he sees great economic opportunity in terms of grid modernization, transportation electrification, clean technology advancement, and he can't ignore any contentious politics um, he has to be able to embrace what is his reality in order to advance any of these things. And so the question is, you know, how, do he, how, how does he do that? And so it's going to be a very solutions-oriented presentation in terms of how he has successfully advanced these things that are um, really aligning incentives, but just doing it in a way that it doesn't polarize or bring in that political climate that we have right now. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. 
You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, for our U.S. listeners, have a safe, enjoyable Labor Day weekend. And from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>